Amen. If you remember from two weeks ago, we, we concluded with seeing a, a wrong use of the law. We, we saw a wrong use of the law, and uh, in the Apostle Paul highlights this for us, particularly in verses 6 and 7. If you, uh, and I would encourage you to have your Bibles open and kind of looking through this with me. But if you jump back to verses 6 and 7, we get this snapshot of the wrong use of the law, right? This certain persons, again, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, okay, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Right? In, in today's text, we move from that, okay, we move from the wrong use of the law to Paul speaking about the right use of the law. And, and Paul has, has surgeon-like precision here because he doesn't just do away with the law based on a reaction against these false teachers, which, which perhaps could be something that he might have been tempted to do, right? And don't we do that often, right? We, we can build an entire belief system based on, uh, uh, in, in a reaction based on a bad experience in our past, right? That's not the direction that the Apostle Paul goes here. Paul, in, in, instead of doing that, he, he props up the error, okay? We, we see the error in verses 6 and 7. He props up the faulty distortions of the law, which, which we saw, again, a couple of weeks ago, lead people away from Christ into this kind of enslaving superstitious cult, if you will. He, he showcases that, and then, in light of that wrong use, he shows us the proper use of God's law. And that's what I want us to spend our time on this morning. I want us to spend time on the goodness of God's law. I want us to spend time on the usefulness of God's law. And, and our very first point, if you're taking note, is this. And we, uh, we need to wrestle to remember this, because this may seem very basic to us, but the outworking of our lives demonstrates a forgetfulness to this. The law is good. The law of God is good, and it's useful. The law of God is good, and it's useful. And in and, and the word good in our text, it means beautiful, or it means desirable. It means beautiful or desirable. It means that, that its object is intrinsically sound. It's intrinsically moral in, in an ethical sense. And in our context, the object is the law, it's the law, right? Paul, with, with the backdrop of, of the false teachers and, um, and the false teaching, um, is taking what they've distorted. He's taken what these false teachers have distorted, and he's recapturing it with its proper definition, okay? He's, he's not abandoning the word. He's not abandoning the definition. He's not saying, you know what, this is bad. Let's just start over and let's build from scratch. What Paul's doing is he, in the gathering of the church, is making sure that he's taking what's been distorted, which is this birthright of the church, the precious law of God. He's recapturing it with its proper definition. He's, he's recapturing it with a proper application, and he calls it good. And remember, this would have been done in the presence of those false teachers, right? They would have been sitting in the pews. How awkward. But here we, we, we have the Apostle Paul asserting what the, the prophets in the Old Testament asserted and believed, right? The law of God is good and useful. Oh, how I love your law, says the psalmist in Psalm 119. 
Oh, how I love your law. And so why is God's law good foundationally? Again, the, the answer should be obvious. But the law of God is good foundationally because God is good. Right? The lawgiver is good, and he's eternally good. Right? There's no shadow. There's no variation in his goodness. The law of God is good because God is good, eternally so. That's the fundam- fundamental reason why we as Christians should see the law of God is good. It's the fundamental reason why we as Christians should see the law of God is useful. The, the law of God harmonizes with God's nature. The law of God reveals, or the law of God reveals his character. Right? It, it, it's his standard. Right? That's the reason to love his law. This is why the psalmist I just quoted a moment ago can say that uh, God's law is the blessed life. That's the very first verse in Psalm 119, right? He says that he can delight in it, which is verse 14 of Psalm 119. He says that he meditates on it, which is verse 15 of Psalm 119. He says that his soul is consumed with longing for it, which is verse 20 of 119. He says that he clings to it, which is verse 31 of 119. He says that he hopes in it, which is verse 43. He says that he loves it, Verse 47, and he says that the law of God comforts him. Verse 52. Now, that's just the first 50-ish verses. That's a long chapter if you're familiar with Psalm 119, right? But why so much affection? Why so much affection? Why, why the love? Why can the psalmist speak this way about God's law? That's certainly the question that we should be asking when we're looking at something like Psalm 119. It's because for the psalmist, for him, there was an inseparable connection with the law of God and God himself. There was an inseparable connection there. For the psalmist, to love the law of God is to love the Lord God because the law reveals God. Now, I'm going to flesh this out in a minute, but I want us to really contemplate this for a moment. God's precepts, God's word the totality of his word, is inseparable from his character. It's inseparable from his nature. And where do we see this ultimately displayed for us? We see this ultimately displayed, that's right, in in Christ Jesus. God's word made flesh. John chapter 1, the first four verses there. We see this ultimately displayed in the God-man here. Now, Again, Paul, Paul's being precise for us because he gives a qualifier in our text. He says the law of God must be used according to the Scriptures. Right? Again, we, we see clearly there's abuses of it. Right? We see perhaps you've experienced abuses of it um, in the church, in society. But Paul gives a qualifier here on the goodness of God's law. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if, if. Right? If one uses it lawfully, right? If one uses it according to its intended purpose, if one is not abusing it, if one is not distorting it, if one is not making it something uh, that it was never intended to be, right? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. And again, he's propping this up because we should see that to distort laws, God's law is to distort God's character. 
Right? It's not that you can actually do that in the grand scheme of things, but what these false teachers are doing either intentionally or unwittingly is slandering the very nature and character of God by twisting his law and making it something that it's not. Right? So Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully, then the rest of the passage for us, he shows us how exactly the law is used lawfully. He shows us how exactly the law is used according to the Scripture. Look back at the text with me. We know the law is good, verse 8, if one uses it lawfully. Go to verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to, to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. I mentioned this to some degree um, on my, my sermon on the law of God this past summer, but this morning I want to spend the rest of our time fleshing it out because our text this morning showcases the, it well. It's actually what the reformers referred to as the threefold use of the law. Uh, Martin Luther uh, particularly summarized the purpose of the law as twofold in most places, sometimes threefold, but purpose one for civil or political use, and then the second is theological or spiritual. But we're going to follow the, the, the threefold use of the law this morning as outlined in, in paragraph um, six of chapter 19 in our confession. And the first and primary use of the law is this. The law should be used as a mirror that drives us to Jesus. Right? The law should be used as a mirror that drives us to Jesus. That's the most important thing about the law. And if you hear nothing else in the sermon this morning, that is what I want you to hear. All right? The law should be used as a mirror that drives us to Jesus. All right? Think back to Psalm 119 for a moment where I was just kind of quickly at a 20,000-foot view, looking at it or just quoting from it. But if the law didn't drive us to Jesus, there would be no way that we could have the kind of intimacy that we see the psalmist have with the law of God in Psalm 119. Right? There'd be no way that we could describe God's law with that sort of intimacy. In our passage, right, this First Timothy passage, we see the list of sins that Paul gives that, that, that we've recognized as the outworking, if you will, of false doctrine. We saw that even a few weeks back. And in seeing that list, what we should see first, right, otherwise we're the people with the log in our eyes that Christ talks about, right? what we should see first when we see that list is ourselves. Right? That's the very first thing that we should see is ourselves. Right? The law of God was written for us lawbreakers, right? right? The law of God is for sinners, but, but that's not all there is, right? Because if that was all there is, that would be quite depressing for us, wouldn't it? Right? But upon a, a proper contemplation of ourselves, when we're, when we're seeing ourselves in this text, when we're seeing ourselves as we work through the Ten Commandments together in our segment on confession, confession, when we do that as a part of our worship service, right? When we're seeing that, and, and we're seeing ourselves in light, of, in light of God's good and searching law, right? In, in light of His very Word that, that by the way, 
the preacher uh, to the Hebrews says about God's word, right? That it's sharper than a double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. When we view ourselves in light of that, the only rational thing to do is to confess our sins and place our trust in the one who kept every jot and tittle of the law, right? right? And the person who kept every jot and tittle of the law is Christ Jesus. As Christians, we know this, or we should know this, and we shouldn't forget it, right? We do forget it because we're a forgetful people, just like those in the early church were forgetful and had to be reminded over and over and over again, right? But this is the very thing that we stand on. We confess that Jesus Christ is the only one that has kept every jot and tittle of the law, and we put our trust in him. It's the very reason that you all got out of bed this morning to come and gather. Amen? Now, that's the primary purpose of this list, right? To lead us to confession, to lead us to repentance, to lead us to faith in an in, uh, lead us in faith in, to an eternally sufficient Savior. And Paul sheds further light on this, this, this foundational purpose of God's law in Romans chapter 3. I encourage you to flip over there just quickly. I just want to briefly look at verses 19 to 26. I'll sit here in silence till I hear pages turn. The, just kidding. Okay. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge <clears throat> of sin. All right, stop, stop right there for a minute. All right, Paul says that, that, that we're without excuse, and, and I'll add, especially in light of, of God's law being written on our hearts, right? Jeremiah chapter 31 stuff. But he says that no one is justified by the law, right? In other words, nobody can, nobody can keep God's law, right? You're not going to stand before God one day with your good deeds as the basis of your salvation, right? God's law only has the capacity for us to see our transgressions of his good unchanging law, right? Continue with me in that Romans passage here, verse 21. But, right, but we see this shift here of the Apostle Paul, okay? So he's addressed the law, guys, he says, but now the righteousness of God, is the good news, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, right? So, so we see the law here, according to the Apostle Paul, as an arrow, right? Think Big, blinking, LED light sort of arrow here, right? Paul's saying, <coughs> excuse me, that we, we can't be righteous through the law, right? Which is righteous because God is righteous. But there, there, there's no good news because the righteousness of God, there's, there's good news because the righteousness of God has been manifested, it's been made visible apart from the law, right? Not, not contrary to the law, but apart from the law. Keep going. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. Right? And then you're, you're familiar with this if you've been in church life for any length of time. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, thank God for that, are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why? This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right? The righteousness that is being talked about here in this passage is a foreign righteousness to us. Right? It's not something that's conjured up within us. It's not our, our true selves. This is a foreign righteousness. Right? It's not some righteousness that God brings out in us. It's a righteousness completely outside of ourselves. Right? The righteousness is Christ Jesus. Right, this righteousness is Christ Jesus, and our good, gracious, and merciful God um, justifies us sinners based on the righteousness of Jesus alone. Right, for those of us in Christ, He will judge us when we stand before when we stand before God and we give an account. God will judge us based on the righteousness of Jesus. Praise God for that. Otherwise, we're doomed. All of us. Turn over with me to Galatians chapter 3 here, <clears throat> verses 10 to 14. This further sheds light as if we're not convinced already. All right, this is the Apostle Paul again under the inspiration of the Spirit. Chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26 here, for it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, and he quotes again, <coughs> and he quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather Quote, and he quotes Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. The one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What are we seeing here as it relates to Christ and the law, right? What are we seeing here as it relates to law and gospel? What we're seeing here, and the reason I wanted to make sure that you're seeing that the Old Testament is being quoted by the Apostle Paul here, what we're seeing here is that the purpose of the law was never to justify. It was never to justify. It never had justifying power for those of us who are born sinners, which is all of us, right? The psalmist says there's none good, Psalm 14. The Apostle Paul uses that and applies that to all of us when he, and he quotes it in Romans chapter 3. Right? Those who live their lives thinking that they can be good enough to earn God's favor are cursed, according to Galatians, according to the inspired words of God. They're cursed because no one can keep the unwavering standards of a holy, good God. And we see the good news in that Christ redeemed us from the curse, which we could not undo ourselves. Right? Christ redeemed us, redeemed us from the curse that the first Adam introduced to us. Right? Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse himself. 
Now drop down to verses 21 and 22 of Galatians 3 this morning. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul's anticipating, I think, an anti-law spirit to perhaps rise up. He's addressing it here. He says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that, that so that is important there, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Listen closely here. The law is for those who are lawbreakers, all of us. And here's the good news. Ultimately, the law of God will lead us to what Paul calls in our first Timothy text, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's encouraging there. The law made the path to Jesus so much clearer for us. That's what Paul and Timothy were committed to heralding to those who were sick, those who were sinners. We know Jesus didn't come to heal the well but the sick. Mark 2.17, Luke 5.31. And this is the message of our hope. Christ joyfully upheld the holy standard of God, and those of us in Christ Jesus get to reap the benefits of that. This is the message that we're saved by. This is the message that we're committed to. This is the message that's been entrusted to us by God to herald to each other every Lord's Day. This is the message that we herald to all those that God grants in our circle of influence as well. By by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, we can forsake our sins, right? Those transgressions of God's law, and we can place our trust in the only man who ever kept the law of God, the God-man Jesus Christ, right? This is the first This is the primary purpose of God's good, beautiful law. It drives us to Jesus. The second use of God's law, and these will move faster, maybe. The law should be used to restrain outward evils. The law should be used to restrain outward evils, right? We should know that the the law of God can't change the heart. Right, it never had permission to do that, but it can be used to restrain outward evils. In fact, it should be used to restrain outward evils. Many of our laws in our very constitution, both as a state and as a nation, have behind them an influence and understanding somewhat of God's law. But looking at this list of sins back in our First Timothy passage, we see clearly what God, according to his law, considers evil, don't we? Right? And, and pay attention to it. I'm going to read it real quick, and you can thumb back there just to look at it. But pay particular attention to the fact that these sins are contrary to God's moral law as summarized where? In the Ten Commandments, right? Look at this list in verse 10. Those who strike their fathers and mothers. Right? That certainly stands out as the fifth commandment, doesn't it? Those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, <coughs> enslavers, liars, perjurers. All right, what are we seeing here? We're seeing Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quote the second table of the law. That's what he's doing here. He's quoting the back six commandments here. He, he, he's not just making stuff up. 
Right? He, he knows the law of God is morally binding. He's listing sins that were summarized in the Ten Commandments and that were understood to be clear transgressions of God's revealed will, of God's moral law. But it's interesting to me that the back six commandments are his focus. That's the focus. Look with me briefly. Because of that, I want to go back to Romans 13. We looked at this earlier this year. Because I want to show you something I think is relevant on, a, on this passage in which the back six commandments are propped up for us. Romans 13, 1 to 4. <clears throat> Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God. Right, the word there is diakonos, he's a deacon, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Right, we've become very familiar with this passage, especially over the last two years. And the reason I want to bring this passage in is because it harmonizes with our text so well. When we read Romans 13, we should be thinking of the second table of the law. We should be thinking of the back six commandments. Sadly, and again, especially over the last two years, we've seen that that's the last thing that comes to our mind as a church when we think of Romans 13. Right? We've quoted that in Western society as if the government can do whatever they want to do and Christians go along with that. Yet, according to Romans 13, God, thank you so much, Dan. He was sick of hearing me cough. But according to Romans 13, God established the civil government as his deacon. He established the civil government as his servant. That's the job description, and it's a very limited job description. Verse 3 in Romans 13 here says that the civil magistrate is a terror to bad conduct. Again, we need to know what that means. Bad conduct according to who is the question that we should be asking. What did Paul mean? Right? If Paul, and I think he wrote this during the reign of Nero, if he's <clears throat> talking about Roman law where Christians are being tied to the stake and burned at the stake, we've got a problem, don't we? Certainly he's not appearing to, appealing to Nero. Certainly he's not uh, appealing to the Roman judicial system as uh, being the model for being a terror to bad conduct. Right? Paul meant bad conduct according to the law of God. Specifically to the second table of the Ten Commandments, those back six commandments. The civil magistrate is to punish evildoers according to the second table of the law. The, the civil magistrate is a deacon to God in operating in that way. Right? That's why those who have gone before us have seen the second table of God's law as useful and good, not just for the church, but even for society at large. And by the way, that's freeing. That's not enslaving. That's freeing. Right? There's so much less regulation when we, when we think about the law in this way. There's so fewer laws if it were to function in this way. And operating in such a way ensures a just, equi equitable, stable law. A just, equitable, stable judgment. Now, some of us may have an easy time with this because we already see some of this applied. Like, 
stealing, right, or perjuring, lying, murder, may, ha- may ha- see the court system in the entanglement in issues of adultery at times. But what if something like honor your father and mother, right, which is the very first thing that was quoted here by the Apostle Paul, the fifth commandment. I think in, in, in a case like this, we need to have our minds renewed by the Scripture even elsewhere. Second Timothy chapter 3, you can flip over there quickly. It says, but understand this, starting with verse 1, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive. What, what's there? Disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid them. Avoid such people. Or look at Romans 1, beginning with verse 28. Since they didn't see fit to, since they did not see fit, I almost made that a Georgian translation, to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Okay, here's the outworking of the debased mind. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Here we go. Disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They celebrate the practicing of such things. And if we don't see that in our culture, we certainly see that in our culture. This is in the culture of the Apostle Paul when he wrote Romans. And while the law of God can't restrain the heart... It can and should be used to restrain outward acts of rebellion. But New Testament passages like this, they help to renew our minds and give us a look at the sinister nature even of dishonoring parents, right? It has a progression to it. It has an outworking to it. It keeps a certain type of company, right? It's a rejection of all God's established authority, including civil authority, Right? It's living as if we're the ones in authority. It's living as if we're autonomous when in God's world we're anything but autonomous, aren't we? We see in passages like this just how sin clusters. And again, the law of God can't restrain the heart, but it should and could be used to restrain outward actions of rebellion that showcase a rejection and lack of respect for authority for the good of society. So we see first, and again, foundationally, that the law of God should drive us to Jesus. Secondly, we see that the law of God should be used to restrain outward evils. And lastly, the law of God should be used to promote good works in the lives of believers. <coughs> the law should be used to promote good works in the lives of believers. All right, so restraining outward evils is the negative way to utilize God's law. All right, we see this through the magistrate punishing the evildoer, right? Promoting good works is the positive element of God's law. So something like thou shalt not murder, right? Thou shalt not murder is the negative way to state or apply uh, or speak of God's law. Uh, preserving life is the positive way uh, to put it, right? 
Now look back at verse 10 with me in our text. Right? False doctrine, which we see leads to a sinful immoral lifestyle, is contrasted in our text here in verse 10. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of God, uh, the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And to, to live immorally Right, to, to not strive in good works by cooperating with the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you is to live contrary to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Right? It's to live as one who abuses the grace of God. It's to live as one who tramples on the forgiveness that God has provided for us in Christ Jesus. Right? This concerns for us, what should be coming to our mind is that theological word, the doctrine of sanctification, Right? As a pastor, Joel Beakey, defines sanctification this way, and it's one of the best I've found. The doctrine of sanctification concerns the application of the gospel during the journey from start to finish. It's the day-by-day effect of the gospel, right? In other words, the gospel in our lives, right, the good news in our lives should be made increasingly tangible in the comings and goings of our life. Right? The gospel has hands, the gospel has feet. Right? The gospel through us is salt, the gospel through us is light. Right? Remember back when we went through a biblical view on missions <clears throat> this past summer, we looked at the Great Commission and, and often neglected part of the Great Commission isn't just the authority of Christ, verse 18, but it's also the first part of verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you as a part of the Great Commission. The the Great Commission isn't complete until we learn obedience. This is part of what the church is to model. This is why it's significant. If we want to see the culture change, we have to change. This is part of what the church is to model. It's a part of what the church is to herald. We're justified before God. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and we're to look at God's ways, and we're to seek to walk in them. And to walk in rebellion to God's ways is to walk against the gospel that's been entrusted to us. As Christians, as those of us that are in Christ Jesus, fully justified by our triune God's cosmic plan of redemption, we must learn to love God's law anew. We must look to the law of God, both the negative and positive commands in it, We must notice God's character as we stare at it, and we must cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God living in us to delight in keeping his law. And this will be a struggle for us this side of eternity. But as one pastor says, don't begrudge the struggle, for the struggle itself is an evidence of grace. A few takeaways for us this morning. These are in your bulletin. First is this, the primary purpose of God's law is to show us our need for Christ more clearly. Look at the law, thankful that Jesus truly kept it. Look at the law, thankful that Jesus truly kept it. Secondly, don't expect the law to do what only the gospel can do. The law of God can be used to restrain outward evils, but it cannot convert man's heart to love our triune God, his law, and his gospel. Three, Get clarity on Romans 13 in light of God's law and in the midst of a church culture perpetually abusing the passage. Four, the outworking of the gospel in our lives should be showcased increasingly in our delightful submission and promotion of God's law. 
we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for being able to spend time in your word. God, help us, Lord, to understand it. Help us to grow as a result of spent being uh, in it. And God, more than anything, Lord, uh, help us uh, to savor who you are for us in Jesus. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.